Today we're going to be in Revelation chapter 4. And as we do each Sunday, we do a little bit of the Old Testament, a little bit of Proverbs, and then we go into Revelation 4. So we're going to go back to Proverbs just for a few verses, uh, six verses. Proverbs chapter 3, starting with verse 31. Proverbs is kind of right in the center of the Bible. If you kind of divided it up and opened it, you'd probably run into Proverbs or Psalms. So Proverbs 3, 31. It says, do not envy the oppressor and choose none of his ways. For the perverse person is an abomination to the Lord, but his secret counsel is with the upright. The curse of the Lord is on the house of the wicked, but he blesses the habitation of the just. Surely he scorns the scornful, but gives grace to the humble. The wise shall inherit glory, but shame shall be the legacy of fools. So you see this kind of antithesis going on here between the righteous and the wicked. And two things that strike me in the first verse, it says, do not envy, do not envy or covet the oppressor or what he has and choose none of his ways. Let your choices not be as a result of your envy. That's really important. And then you see the dichotomy between how God feels about the righteous and how God feels about the wicked. Envy or coveting an evil man or evil men because of their apparent success. Some do seem to get ahead by underhanded means, don't they? We know that many men, and the women, many men and women of the Bible had that concern. Lord, why do the wicked seem to prosper? I don't understand it. Why do you allow this? Well, the answer is twofold. Number one, God is long-suffering. Many of those wicked have actually turned around and come to the Lord and started to live a righteous life and denounce their former life and have a great testimony. Uh, but we know that sin also is pleasurable for a time, but it doesn't go unpunished. God's covenant is with the righteous. And I want to encourage you today because some of you have said outrightly or thought in your mind, you know, I try to do the right thing, I work, I try not to cheat, and I try to get ahead by good means, and I never seem to get anywhere. Well, understand, according to the scripture, God sees that. He sees that sacrifice. And not all of our rewards will be here. Uh, there was a guy who wrote a, a book, very fascinating. He worked on Wall Street. And he, uh, he, was, he was doing what he was doing there and making money. And he did it through underhanded means. He ended up getting in trouble with the law. He ended up getting in trouble with substance abuse and relationships. And he just crashed and burned. And I saw him on the, the news channel, and he's got this book out. And he totally turned his life around. And he said, you know, I could have done really well if I just would have been patient and put the time in. He goes, but it's, it's our society. It's that instant gratification. I need it, and I need it right now. Actually, there's a commercial. I want my money, and I want it now. You ever see that commercial? I don't even know what it's for. But that's the characterization of our society. We want it right now. And what's really sad to see is that often God's people lust after what the world has are you being influenced by the world or are you influencing the world that's the question god's people looking over at what the unrighteous have and what the wicked have and they're just drooling they're lusting for it it's not enough to have jesus and uh, that's really a sad thing to see well the last time um, we covered revelation we saw the address jesus's address to the seven churches uh, in Western, what we know now is modern-day uh, modern Turkey. And today we're going to get a peek into God's throne room. Now today, I really want you to use your imagination. I want you to get lost in the message, so to speak. Okay, just listen to what God's word is saying and just try to visualize it because we're going to be in the throne room of heaven. 
Now, I want to take you from the familiar to the unfamiliar. It's a kind of my, my feeble attempt at a parable. That's what Jesus did. He took things that they could understand and see tangibly, and he brought them into the spiritual realm from there. So here's my question. By a show of hands, how many of you remember the old Star Trek series? Raise your hand. Oh, good. We got a few Trekkies in here. <laughs> so at least what I'm going to do right now, most of you hopefully will understand and not just think I've flipped my lid. But remember the bridge. Most of what happened on Star Trek was on the bridge. This was the control center to the whole universe, right? The USS Starship Enterprise, the, the idealistic thought that it was going to right the wrongs of the universe. It was going to help the oppressed. It was going to right the wrongs. It was going to keep order and justice in the universe, right? So you had a few things going on in the bridge of the Starship Enterprise, and one of them was Mr. Spock. We all remember the pointy ears and the thing he did with his hands, and he said, live long and prosper, right? And he was always on the bridge looking in that scanner for well, who knows what he was looking for. And then you had Uhuru who sat um, sort of to the right there, and she had that thing sticking out of her ear where she would communicate to all the different ships, right? Sort of a precursor to a Bluetooth. And then you had um, Mr. Chekhov. He was like, sort of like the navigator, and he'd be sitting in his seat, and he was always very serious. Every once in a while, he'd say, Kipton, Klingons are rapidly approaching. <laughs> and then you had Captain Kirk. Now, you're getting a visual, right? Captain Kirk was so suave and debonair and everything. It was so cool about everything. It's okay, Mr. Chekhov. I got it all under control. Kirk, to the engine room. Yeah, Mr. Scott, take us up to warp 10, and don't forget to energize the photon torpedoes. Right? And then who was he talking to but the lovely Mr. Scott? This poor guy was always stressed out. He was always in the engine room, and things were breaking, and he, he, you know, his boss always tried to make the ship go faster, and he had that intercom above him, and he'd say something to the effect of, Aye, Captain, the bloody engine is giving it all she's got. At this speed, she can't take it much longer. Right? Now, who's left? Oh, we can't forget the beloved uh, Dr. McCoy. Every once in a while, he'd barge onto the bridge. He was always losing patience. His famous line was, He's dead, Jim. Or he'd say something to the effect of, I'm a doctor, not a miracle worker, right? So now you all have a picture right in your mind of the bridge of the Starship Enterprise. So if somebody asks you today, well, what did you learn at church? You could tell them Star Trek. What kind of place do you go to? But the point I'm trying to make is that, why do I cover this? Because you had at the bridge was a visualization of command of the universe. Now I'm going to take you into reality. I'm going to take you into the spiritual realm. I'm going to take you to the unfamiliar. And I'm going to show you as we read chapter 4, the bridge of the throne room of heaven. And I actually named this message where no man has gone before. Sort of like from Star Trek, but really where no man has gone before into the throne room of heaven. And as we delve into this realm, the more we focus on him, our current problems seem to just kind of fade away. And let me just read... Brother Les sent me um, uh, an interesting top ten list, and it says this, top ten predictions no matter who wins the election. Well, you can really fill in your blanks. Top ten predictions no matter what happens to the stock market. Top ten predictions no matter what happens to my pension. I mean, it's all there. And here it goes. It says, number one, the Bible will still have all the answers. These are constants in the universe. Two, prayer will still work. Three, the Holy Spirit will still move. Four, God will still inhabit the praises of his people. Five, there will still be God-anointed preaching. Six, there will still be singing of praise to God. 
Seven, God will still pour out his blessings upon his people. Eight, there will still be room at the cross. Nine, Jesus will still love you. And ten, Jesus will still save the lost. Isn't it great to know who is still in control? Chapter 4, let's dig in. Verse 1. The Apostle John says, After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. This is the impetus to wanting to be overcomers. Because we really need to, once we get through and see the glory of God, now we go back to the churches that Jesus spoke to and he spoke about being overcomers and you see what the desire and the impetus is to being an overcomer. Here's the reward. The Greek word for after these things is metatauta, which is a chronological statement. Now, not everything in Revelation is chronological order, but this particular portion of scripture it is, is a parallel to history. After what things? After the letters? After the events? after Jesus speaking about the characteristics to the seven churches, and after the church age. Remember, each church represented a church age. So here, the church age is over. What is the next event on the prophetic calendar? None other but the rapture. A few things happen. Number one, heaven is opened. Uh, The word uh, uranus, I believe it is in the Greek, can mean either heaven or sky. All of a sudden, John's looking up and there's like a door open. That door doesn't belong there. It's like, okay, I see the sky, and you know what it is? It's another dimension. It's the spiritual realm. The door opens in heaven. The second thing that happens, there's a voice as of a trumpet. Now, we know according to 1 Thessalonians 4 and Revelation 1, this is most likely the voice of Jesus. The third thing that happens here, he says, come up here, and he also is transported as in the spirit. In the spirit means By natural means, the natural can't understand the supernatural. Only the spiritual man can discern all all things. The natural man really can't discern much of anything. So John is in the spirit, and he's he's in a different state, uh, and it's a picture of really a perfected state. Uh, Come up here. It's an invitation of the saints to heaven. So all these things, if you take all uh, four things together, that's what the rapture is. The open door to heaven, the voices of a trumpet, the invitation to come to heaven and being in the spirit, being transformed from the terrestrial to the, to the celestial. And as the apostle Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye, what does the apostle John see? He sees a throne in heaven with somebody on it. Who's on that throne? It doesn't really say in this chapter until we get to chapter five. It's the father. It's God, the father, based on we see what we see in the next chapter. A few things. The word throne was symbolic in monarchies. The Greek word is thronos. So it's really a transliteration from Greek to English. Throne, he would be able to understand that throne because in those days, kingdom after kingdom after kingdom had monarchies, had kings or emperors or some type of ruler that sat on this throne. But here in heaven is the most important place. And uh, in, in the earthly realm, even the throne in the earthly realm was the most important place of the kingdom. And the king ruled from there. Throne is used in this chapter at least 14 times. Again, back to the old or back to the top 10 list, God is in control. God rules the universe and all creation, and apparently he rules it from this state, from this place. Now, in chapter 3, okay, go back and forth a little bit because they really kind of flow into each other if you weren't here. In chapter 3, 
One of the things that Jesus said to the Laodiceans, which was the last church, which they were really corrupt. This is known as the apostate church. He wanted them to overcome. He wanted them to, to, um, you know, repent. He wanted them to do the right thing. And he said to them, and if you do that, if you overcome, I will grant you to sit on my throne with me. That's interesting because in the kingdoms and the monarchies, the throne was a special seat that only the king could sit on. It wasn't a couch. It was a, like a chair. But to me, in my mind, I have a picture of a dad, a good dad, a loving father who's got a bunch of kids. And he's sitting in his favorite chair. And all the kids come and they just want to sit on daddy's lap. And they all pile on dad and one's on one leg, one's on the other. And this is the picture I have with Jesus. He says, come, sit on my throne with me. It's a very personal statement that he makes. And this should encourage us regardless of the emotional baggage that we walked into this building with today. And what is it? You know, we could talk about... Gee, I just put my kids into college, and now this stuff is going on with the financial markets. How am I going to do it? You know, every time I go to a different doctor, they're telling me the same thing about my medical condition. What do I do? Right? Or you may even come here today and not know anything about the Bible or anybody sitting next to you and say, you know what, I really don't belong here because everything seems to be right. They're talking about the Bible, and I'm a sinner. You don't know my past. Take that emotional baggage and throw it in the garbage because God knows your condition. You know, life is, a, is an up-and-down roller coaster. You know, sometimes you're the bug, sometimes you're the windshield, right? <laughs> sometimes you're doing really well, and sometimes you hit those valleys and you hit really low. And that's the way life is. There's actually an article from England, um, bizarre article. There's this big campaign now. The atheists are going out in, in England to put these, uh, spending a lot of money, all right? Now, if you're an atheist and you don't believe in God, you look at people of faith as fools, so why you try to spend so much time to get these people to believe what you believe? Because they're really resisting God. That's the answer. So they have these slogans, and the slogans, they, now they have them on buses and everything, and it says this, there's probably no God, so stop worrying and enjoy your life. To me, it's the reverse. If there's no God, now it's time to worry. Well, what happens when I die? Well, what happens if those crazy Christians are right? Well, what happens if I don't cease to exist and my mind is still alive? And what if I, you know, all these questions... So I don't understand the logic in that, but basically, whatever your problem is today, realize that Jesus promises us. If Jesus could tell the Laodiceans, which were really, in a lot of ways, they were rotten. It was an apostate church. If he could tell them, clean up your act, overcome, and you can sit with me on my throne, then what does it say for us today? There's a message of encouragement for all of us. And everywhere in the Bible is a message of encouragement. He says another thing. He says, let me show you the things that are going to take place. So what you see here is the end of the corrupt world, the man-centered world, the man-controlled world, right? And the beginning of God's eternal and pure kingdom. And this should evoke good feelings. Not the end of the world, the end of the world. We should look at it as it's another stage in our life. Now, instead of having corrupt politicians tell us what to do, make ungodly laws, take our money, rob us blind, now we go into an era where God now says, okay, I've redeemed the earth back. We're going to see that in chapter 5. And now I'm going to rule. Wow, what a pleasure. A righteous president. Awesome. Remember Star Trek where everything, um, if you saw the movie, you know, they had all the slides and the buttons and all that kind of stuff. And everything was controlled by there. Well, here's the bridge room to the sovereign God over all creation as we go further. Verse 3. And he who sat... There, or on the throne, was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. 
Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. Understand, as we go through this, there are going to be times, especially in this book, where I'm going to say, I'm not really sure, but this is my best guess or stab at it. I'm just trying to be realistic with you. Beware of somebody who tells you they know all the mysteries and the secrets of God, because we only know what God has revealed to us. Now, understand, too, that in this book, it really helps to have a working knowledge of the Old and the New Testaments, because God's 66th book pulls from the 65 previous books, pulls all that information, all the prophecy, all God's word, and a lot of it is scattered all through Revelation. So I'm going to kind of go back and forth a little bit, but try to make sense of it. And understand, too, that the Apostle John gets a glimpse of heaven. Do you think for a moment that he could do heaven justice by writing in words on a piece of paper? John is trying to do the best he can to describe the indescribable. Certainly, when we get to heaven, we're going to say, hey, that day that we we read chapter 4, I kind of got a picture of it, but boy, this is more glorious than I could have ever imagined. So these are all the few um, preambles before we get into the meat of the scripture. We need to visualize this. Number one, the description here is, He who sat there was like a jasper. Now, a jasper, some translations have diamond in it, but this is a stone that was a clear stone. This is a picture of God being perfect and flawless. The Bible says there's no darkness at all in him. When you go diamond shopping, you look into that thing that they have. It's a microscope or some type of thing that they put the diamond under. And uh, as beautiful as it looks on on the outside, uh, they they look for there's characteristic of flaws. There's little spots, little imperfections in it. God has none. This is perfectly clear, perfectly flawless. The second thing is like a sardius. Um, Some believe that this is a ruby, but apparently it has a red color. What does red mean? What does red indicate? Well, God is a God of love, but he's also a God of judgment as well. We know that the second uh, horse of the apocalypse is a red horse, and on him is war. Uh, We also know that red is the color of the blood that his son spilled on the cross to redeem mankind from his sins. So red definitely has some significance there. Three, like a a rainbow like an emerald. Now we know an emerald is green, and I'll come back to that. A rainbow, we know that a rainbow is significant of God's covenant to Noah and his family when they got off the ark in Mount Ararat, which is now modern-day Turkey, and he promised not to destroy the world again by flood, and the rainbow was a sign of that covenant. Um, The only thing I know about green is that it's my wife's favorite color, But I don't think that has any significance here. (laughs) So I don't know what green is for. Uh, But I will tell you that all these gemstones are found in the breastplate of the high priest. Remember in the Old Testament in Exodus 28. Okay, Uh, The high priest had to wear that breastplate. And there was a spiritual significance to that. But if you've ever looked at a clean or clear precious gem, it disperses the light in a captivating or scintillating fashion. And how the light just kind of reflects and refracts and It's really almost, again, it's almost mesmerizing in a way. And I can just imagine what John was seeing when he was looking at this. First Timothy says uh, that God dwells in inapproachable light. And first John 1 5 says that God is light. 24 thrones with 24 elders. Now, understand that God is on the throne and the other thrones were, um, you can loosely translate that to be smaller thrones. Obviously not with the same prominence of God the Father. So these thrones with these elders on it. There's a few theories here. Number one is that they're the 12 patriarchs of Israel in the Old Testament. 
Uh, they, each one of them ruled a, a, a tribe that Israel was divided up into. And the other 12 come from the disciples in the New Testament. Some believe that the 24 elders represent the church. Others say that the 24 elders represent an order of angels. I strongly disagree with that, and I'll tell you why. But I believe that the uh, 24 was the 12 patriarchs, the tribes of Israel, plus the 12 disciples, which was representative of all human histories, worship of God, and subsequent furthering of the kingdom of heaven. The three symbols here, we look at number one, the number 12, and there's going to be a lot of numbers. We're going to see a lot of sevens and twelves and threes, and we're going to try to make sense of that. Uh, Twelve seems to represent authority, governance, and judgment in the Bible. Even today, a lot of the things that we've taken, uh, the jury has, has, has 12, right? If you, they decide your fate, guilt, or innocence, life or death in a lot of cases. Uh, but 12 seem to be God's number for authority, governance, and judgment. They were clothed in white, which is a positive action of sanctification. So they were made holy. God gives them whatever they're wearing or they're not wearing. God gives them clothes in white to be clothed in. We saw in Jesus when Jesus was transformed and transfigured uh, to the three disciples, uh, John, James, and Peter. He had uh, clothes. He was so uh, bright. It wasn't even the color white. It was so bright that it was, it was blinding to them. So this is a picture of sanctification and purity. And three, the main reason why I don't believe it's an order of angels is their crowns. Remember, their achievements, the crown of life, the crown of righteousness. We see a lot of the crowns in the scripture that if we overcome, if we stay steadfast to the end, we will receive these crowns. And we're going to see later that these elders actually take the crowns off and they, they prostrate themselves before the Lord and throw the crowns at his feet. Because every gift that we've ever been given, we have to realize the author of that. It comes from God. And he can give and take away at will. So we ought to honor him with those crowns. So these crowns um, are given back to God because of the abilities and the opportunities that he's given us. Notwithstanding, these elders, as elevated as they are, remember, these guys are the A-list. The Apostle John comes up there, he sees the creatures, he sees the angels, he sees the elders, and he probably felt really small while he was up there. These are the A-list, right? And as great as they are, they serve at the good pleasure of God the Father. They serve in the king's court. Now, again, if you came from a monarchy, if you came from a country where there were kings, this would really have a, a richer meaning for you. But in the United States, you know, it's a, it's a representative government. We elect our officials. Uh, but this is uh, total autonomy and total rule by God the Father. Verse 5. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. And there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass like crystal, and in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. Lightnings and thunderings and voices, oh my. The Apostle John certainly had to be at this point on sensory overload. He either slept really good that night or he was up all night, one or the other. Because, you know, it, it, again, you have to picture it. This is why one of the most important scriptures that we cover that you need to really put your mind in there and really kind of get a picture of what's going on. And we've seen God represent himself in these three ways to the earth dwellers in the Old Testament and the New Testament. It shows his power and majesty. Uh, there were times where God, God came in flashes of light. 
There were times when there was thunderings. There were times when, when his voice was heard by those people on the earth. So uh, all that together is up here in the throne room. The seven lamps, which are the seven spirits, and we've covered this, the sevenfold spirit, the Holy Spirit. And this reminds me of actually Pentecost. Remember at Pentecost where tongues of fire descended above the, the, uh, the disciples and they ended up speaking in tongues and they had these, this incredible experience at Pentecost, right? And this is where the Holy Spirit came over the disciples. Now, tongues of fire, the word in Greek is glossos. The best way to describe it was maybe it looked like a tongue. I don't know, but maybe it was shaped sort of like a triangle and these little flames were hovering above their heads. Now, in those days, they had these little ceramic lamps that they would get around with. They would put some oil in it or a wick and they would light it and... You know, everything in the Bible, if you understand the culture at the time, makes so much more sense. Your light is a, or your word is a, a light into my, a lamp into my feet and a light into my path. And they would carry around these little lamps at night because there was no street lights. So if they needed to see where they were going, they better have oil and they better have something, you know, to keep that fire going. So you had these little lamps of fire. But the fire and, and the Pentecost is, is a picture of the Holy Spirit. Perfection and totality and universality of the Holy Spirit. Then you see the sea of glass like crystal. Purity and magnificence that separates a holy God from everything else. You're, you're the, the Apostle John and you're walking and you're seeing the throne and you're seeing like sheet glass, like crystal. Again, probably a lot of reflective action going on. Probably something that often as John was walking around, he would just stop and stare and be completely captivated by what he was looking at. The sea of glass as of crystal. And also it, had, it would have the, uh, the characteristic of amplifying the light and do pretty dazzling things. If you've ever been to a light show and you see, you know, it's dark and then they have all these lights that it's pretty neat to watch. So this certainly would blow that away. I'm going to say this. If you don't leave here today more impressed by God, then I haven't done my job. I'll say that again. If you don't leave here today and say, you know what, I'm a little bit more impressed by God because of what I read today, then I'm not doing this justice. I just want to say that because I used to I've read the Bible a few times over and I've never really studied this chapter. And as I started to study it and meditate, I'm like, whoa, God is pretty amazing. He never ceases to impress me or impress me more as I grow in my walk with Christ. So that's important to note. So hopefully you come up to me and say, no, I'm, I'm a little bit more impressed by God today. The four living creatures. Um, some type of order of angels with striking similarity to those in Ezekiel 1. If you're a student of the Bible, Ezekiel 1, you see a lot of similarities with these four living creatures and the living creatures in Ezekiel, which are a picture of a certain type of order of angels, and some similarity to Isaiah 6, the angels there. Now, the first word, again, without really studying it and meditating on it, is I look at this and they have eyes all around and within. The first word that came to my mind was grotesque. But you have to meditate on God's word. That's not what God wants to convey. What I thought of afterwards, after being in prayer about it and studying it, is the next word that came to my mind was incomprehensible. Right? If you have a distorted vision of God's word or what God is doing, we're not understanding God correctly. And the default goes back to our lack of understanding. So understand that. <laughs> understanding. So you look at the eyes, you look at the creatures, and it's kind of a little bizarre, but uh, the more you meditate on it and pray about it, the more you get a better picture of what's going on. Eyes all over, maybe be a picture of uh, the ability to scrutinize, the ability to see all, and no doubt wisdom. So I'm not going to tell you, and this is one of those times where I'm going to say I don't exactly know. Were they actually literal eyes, like hundreds of eyes, that every time something happened, all the eyes would shift in the same direction? 
I'm not so sure. I don't know if this is symbolism. I don't know the answer. But um, we know what eyes mean in the scripture when they are used symbolically. Verse 7. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature like a calf. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. And they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy. Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. First, we're going to see the praises of the four living creatures, and then the last two verses, we're going to see the, the praises of the elders. And there's, they're saying something a little bit different. And then in, in the next chapter, we're going to see that the, the living creatures and the elders in unison sing this new song uh, to the Lamb, to the Lord Jesus. Different faces, um, as we... As we talk about each face and what it represents, what we can see here is the different aspects of the gospel message. And you may say, well, Jesus isn't here yet. Why do these faces represent that? Well, because God's big plan for mankind, his most beloved creation, is salvation and redemption. So the the message of Jesus, the message of Christ shedding his blood for the remissions of our sins, the message of his son Jesus dying on the cross and rising again to redeem sinful mankind to a holy God is wrapped all throughout the Bible and all throughout Revelation, as we'll see. The man. The man represents wisdom. We see that um, Bible scholars say that the, uh, the book of Luke represents the man, represents wisdom, the wisdom of Christ. Right? Four, four aspects here. Two, the lion. The lion was a, a symbol or emblematic of the book of Matthew, which was a picture of royalty. You see, in the book of Matthew, Jesus is represented as the Messiah King. It's packed with Old Testament scriptures to prove that Jesus fulfilled those Old Testament scriptures. Royalty, the king, the Messiah. The third one, the calf. This is a picture of the book of Mark, which is also service. Uh, Cows would be used, oxes, to pull carts and do certain things. In the book of Mark, we see Jesus as a servant. He was constantly serving others. And the eagle, the flying eagle, was emblematic of the book of John, which is sort of different from the other three gospels in many ways. And that was a picture of Christ's deity. The book of John, people say, oh, you get saved, read the book of John, because you really see the divinity of Christ in that book. So you got those four uh, pictures. And these animals or these creatures don't rest or sleep. So they were created to exist outside of our terrestrial domain with our limitations. We all need sleep, don't we? As a matter of fact, if you stay up too long or too many days, you could actually die. Uh, Your body goes into a a medical condition and you, you die. So you have to have sleep. It's a form of torture to keep people up. But these uh, creatures in heaven were designed to exist in the spiritual realm, and they don't need that sleep or that rest. The Bible tells us that. Their message, threefold. Number one, holy, holy, holy. We also see this in Isaiah 6. Three times. Some believe that the three times means Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God's number is three. That's the way he represents himself, uh, the way he manifests himself. Um, Holy means what? It means to be set apart. It means to be clean. It means to be pure. I've heard the expression, God cannot be known apart from his holiness. That's a a good point. And my question to you is, do you really know the holiness of God? Do you? And if you don't, if God is a picture of you where he's... You see, this is the interesting thing about God. And, you know, the gospel message always has to be in the messages that we do on Sunday, is that... The beauty of God is that he is, we're going to see, he is just, we should come out of here saying, wow, you know, I really should 
think about my sins. I really should think about how I treat God. Maybe if I have a cavalier attitude towards him because he is, he's unapproachable. He is amazing. He, sinful man, cannot stand in his presence. But the other thing that's going on at the same time is he sends his son to redeem us, which, you know, God is always wanting his children to come back to him. But there's a problem with sin. Sin, when sin entered the world, death entered the world. So Jesus actually helps us to bring, bring us into his presence where he is approachable again. You see, God walked with Adam and Eve in Genesis. He was, he was with them. And there was a big difference that happened after they, they, they sinned. And even in their own hearts, they, they try to clothe themselves and they try to hide from God, if that could be possible. Because there was now a chasm between sinful man and a holy God. But remember, God used to walk. He, he lovingly put care into Adam and Eve. And, and his creation. And everything was pure and beautiful in the beginning. They were to live forever. They were to drink or eat from the tree of life, right? But they just couldn't eat from the tree that they weren't supposed to eat from. So understand there's a, a twofold message here. If we don't understand God and his holiness, then we don't know God. And we need to really pray about that understanding and read our Bibles more. The second thing it says that he's the Lord God Almighty. This is a picture of God being sovereign and omnipotent, all strength all-powerful. And the third thing is who was and is and is to come. In our feeble understanding, we understand that as eternity. He always was. Well, what, what happened before God? You know, we, we see everything in time. Everything had a beginning and an end. The answer is no. <laughs> but what about, we just, it's, for our mind, it's incomprehensible. He always was, he is, and he always will be. He's eternal. And I would ask that if you're here today for the first time and maybe uh, you've never seen the Bible opened up like this, continue. Come to know God for who he has revealed you to today. Because God, in through his word today, has revealed himself to us in a, in a different way than we've actually known him before. Verse 9, the last, two, uh, last three verses. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him, who lives forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. So now we hear the praises of the elders. They cast their crowns at his feet. And we need to understand whatever rewards we receive from him, and I've said this before, we need to give him glory and honor because of those rewards, and that's what it's showing. The crown, okay, um, I led somebody to the Lord, or uh, I, I can preach, or I can explain the Bible to somebody. Hey, that's great, look at all these crowns. When you're in the presence of the Lord, you take them off, <laughs> and you give them back to the one who gave them to you originally, right? It's a showing of gratitude and honor and submission. So many talents in the body of Christ, singing, instruments, preaching, teaching, miracles, um, laying hands on somebody. And many cast their crowns back to God and give him glory. And some, unfortunately, hold on to their crowns with a death grip. And that means that we don't understand what we have when we do that. What do we do and where do we stand with the talents and achievements and abilities in our life? I mean, that's a good question to ask. Everybody here has an ability. Everyone here has a gift that God has given you. Do we use it for our own end or we use it to further the kingdom of heaven and glorify God? That's a very important question. Or do we bury our talents like the one parable speaks about? Uh, each, each servant was given a different amount of talents, and one took the talent, he covered it in a kerchief, and he buried it in the ground. 
And when the master came back, he said, you could have at least earned interest and put it in the bank. But he buried his talent. All right. And verse 11, we see worship here. Where do we stand when it comes to worship? What is worship? I actually looked it up in the dictionary. The first meaning is a reverence or devotion to a deity. The second meaning is religious homage or veneration and three glorifying God. The goal of our entire Christian service today, no matter from the beginning to the end, should be to worship and glorify God. That's our main function. And when we ask, well, what is our main function? To give the gospel, to study the Bible. Our first function as believers is to glorify and worship God as we see here in chapter 4 because he deserves it. Probably the best expression of worship in our service or any service is what we call worship, right? And that's what happens at the beginning. And it's set to music. We, we repeat uh, words and we meditate on those words and those words have meaning to us and we set it to music. That's what David did, right, in the Psalms. The, you can read the Psalms and study the Psalms, but in those days they were set to certain instruments and they would sing worship to the Lord. It's part of the service where our spirit, mind, and body is prepared for a few things. To focus on the Lord, to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and the ability to receive the message from the pulpit. Again, I said before, the natural man does not discern spiritual things, but the spiritual man discerns everything. If you, in, in the beginning of the service, if you look back there, I usually hide in that corner where Daryl is, <laughs> and Charlie back there, and Oleg. Um, I hide back there, and I try to worship, because I need worship just as much as everybody else does, so that I could be prepared, and I can be settled for what the Lord is trying to show me. Don't think I don't come in here with baggage, too. Don't come, think I don't come in here and think about things that I have to do for the week. So I need to settle my mind and get that out of there and go to a different level. Remember, John was in the spirit. The only way John could really understand what was going on in the throne room of God is when he was in the spirit. Okay? And we need that, too. And we actually cheat ourselves when we treat worship as just music and a sort of buffer to kind of do our things before service. If you think about it, we're going to be worshiping God for eternity. So why shouldn't we practice now? Ah, it's just the music. I'll just come in just in the nick of time, you know, get in the middle of Anthony's uh, announcements, and boom, you know, I'm going to be ready for the sermon. That's, we're cheating ourselves. I'm not chastising anybody, and I don't take notes. <laughs> but we're cheating ourselves, and I'm cheating myself if I'm not in worship. Again, it's going to be something we're going to be doing. And, you know, maybe I only think these things, but I think, gee, when I sing worship songs at, at home, my wife says, can you please keep it down? Because I don't sing very well. And I'm like, yeah, but the Lord loves it because it comes from my heart. So I wonder if for eternity, will, you know, will I sing well? Will I get tired of singing? You know, silly things like that. But the Lord will fix it. When we get there, we'll have the ability to sing beautiful music, and it'll be just an expression of our love for our Savior. And really, it's part of relationship. It's a, it's a back and forth, right? So it's good. Two things to come out of this. Number one, I'm just going to tie in the connection between Revelation 2 and 3, where Jesus speaks to the, the churches and today. This is the reason. Where no man has gone before, the throne room of heaven. This is the reason why we do what we do. This is the reason why Jesus says, can you please overcome to all the churches, Ephesus all the way through Laodicea, overcome, overcome, overcome. This is why we want to overcome, because this is what waits for us, the throne room of heaven. Whoa, wow, ah, we're going to be doing that for all eternity. So when we see God in all his glory, nothing else compares. So what is it? Is it a sin in our lives? Is it... A lack of faith? Is it a lackluster faith? Is it, is it, are we worldly Christians? You know, do we have kind of a foot everywhere? I mean, what, what is it about us? This is the reason, the throne room of God and seeing God in all his glory is why we should 
answer the call of Jesus to become overcomers. And two, this is something that should make us think about our own devotional life. Prayer, reading the Bible, worship, meditating on the word, good Christian fellowship. And again, this is something that we should uh, do introspectively. Maybe a good wake-up call. Let's pray.